Welcome to Occult Experiments in the Home, Magic, Spirituality and the Paranormal, in Personal Experience and in Practice. I met up with a friend last week, and it had been a long time since we'd met each other in person. And it was good to catch up, and we talked about a lot of different things. And then towards the end of the conversation, we started to touch upon astrology. And he mentioned how there was a Mercury retrograde coming up soon. And how he'd now started to look at Mercury retrograde as an opportunity to really rethink something in your life. And he offered to pull up my chart and see what house the Mercury retrograde was going to be happening in for me. And it turned out that it was going to be in my ninth house, the house of spirituality and religion. So my friend said that this would probably be a good time to embark on a rethinking of my relationship, my attitudes around religion. And I did think to myself at the time, well, you know, I'm not sure there's ever a time when I'm not doing that. But after we'd said goodbye and I was on my way walking home, it was as if something kind of clicked, something kind of fell into place. And suddenly I realised that I'd fallen into a complete nest, a complete complex of synchronicities. It's all centred around a particular image, a particular card in the tarot. Arcanum number five, the Hierophant, also known in some decks as the Pope. Now, at first glance, this is maybe not the most glamorous or particularly inspiring card in the Major Arcana. But what has been unfolding over the past few days has indeed been what my friend suggested it might. A really dramatic rethinking, reconsidering the question of what confers on somebody, anybody, the authority to assume a spiritual role. Part of my daily practice is to perform a three-card tarot reading every morning. It's interesting to notice when certain cards keep popping up more than others. And it can be especially striking when the same cards pop up on successive days. And this was indeed what I'd been noticing with the Hierophant. But as I mentioned, it's not the sexiest card in the tarot, and in fact, a case could be made for it being the least sexiest card of all. If you have a look on the internet for suggested interpretations of the Hierophant, you'll see the card as representing concepts such as tradition, orthodoxy, set ways of doing things, dogma. Often this is framed in a fairly positive way, so the card is often taken to represent an authority figure with kindly intentions, like a, a nice teacher, someone who's a establishment figure, but in a nurturing, compassionate kind of way. And the Hierophant is also a very male figure, a masculine figure. He is literally a patriarch, the patriarch. If there's a card in the tarot deck that represents the patriarchy, so-called, then it's this one. Patriarchal power is very rightly regarded with suspicion these days. There have been so many abuses by powerful male figures that have been highlighted and exposed recently that it's sort of impossible to enumerate them all. And our awareness of that being played out in our culture no doubt colours our perceptions of this card. And in that regard, maybe it's useful for us to situate the Hierophant in relation to his brother and sisters. I'm thinking of Arcanum's two to five, which form a little related group, the High Priestess, the Empress, 
the emperor and the hierophant. Two female figures and two male figures with a lot of interesting mirroring going on between them. The emperor is the more materialistic, temporal counterpart to the spiritual hierophant. And that distinction is mirrored between the empress and the high priestess. The empress is the earthly temporal counterpart to the spiritual high priestess. There's a remark that Dion Fortune makes, I think it's in her book on Kabbalah, where she suggests that masculinity is active on the material plane, passive on the spiritual or astral plane. And the opposite in the case of femininity which she suggests is passive on the material plane, but active on the spiritual plane. And maybe we see that quite clearly, perhaps, in these four figures. Thinking about the Empress, who's the more material, earthly side of the feminine. That card is all about what the Empress herself is, what she embodies. Whereas, in contrast, the High Priestess, that card is all about what she does, what she knows, how she puts that into action. And then the same contrast, but flipped around in the case of the masculine cards. The emperor is all about what he does, his force, his power. He's the material masculine and he's active. So the place the hierophant occupies in this quaternity then is the spiritual masculine which is passive in relation to his earthly masculine counterpart. It's not what the Hierophant does that is the mystery of this card, but what he is, what he represents. But let's return for the moment back to that nest of synchronicities. In the early summer last year, I suddenly found myself hitting the buffers and getting a bit burnt out. I had a job doing telephone counselling in a context that it turned out didn't really suit me at all. It was partly to do with the pandemic and I fell into the trap, which is a very common one, I think, of feeling that somehow it was my role to offer solutions or reassurance. But of course I didn't have any solutions because nobody does and I couldn't offer any reassurance because I was feeling very pessimistic myself. And when I started experiencing panic attacks and there was absolutely no support or help from the organisation that I was working for, then I realised it was time to stop. The only problem was after this experience I'd completely lost my confidence with working with any clients at all. I just didn't feel as if I had anything to offer, anything to give that could possibly be of help to anyone. And this was the time where I was desperately trying to get my magical practice back in some kind of regular sustained form. Eventually I managed that and one morning I was meditating and I heard a voice say, all you have to do is love. And suddenly, all that I've just said became apparent to me, that I'd taken on a role of trying to fix and solve things. But fortunately, that voice, I think, came from some higher power, and thankfully I'd reached a point where I could hear it. And just to say how these kinds of experiences, they often take the form of a voice saying some really commonplace, cheesy phrase or other. I don't think these experiences are ever about the words that are said, which always sound like complete cliches, but they're about having that experience of whatever it is being true. So that was pretty much what I took the card to mean, showing me the sort of figure that I was supposed to be, the sort of thing I was supposed to identify with. But what has become apparent to me more recently is that the Hierophant card is more than that. It actually tells us what we need to do and how to do it. So I'd felt that I'd lost my authority to be of help to people because I was trying to fix and solve. But I don't have the power to fix and solve. Nobody does. The voice from the higher self said, all you have to do is love. The Hierophant is an authority, a loving authority. 
He represents the patriarchy. But the patriarchy in our culture has lost its authority because of its abuse of power. The patriarchy in our culture still has power, but it has increasingly less authority. There's something here about the difference between authority and power. The high priestess and the emperor, they have power. He can command armies, use force. She has knowledge, wisdom, access to arcane secrets that she can use. They can both do things. They both have power. But the empress and the hierophant, yes, the empress has a certain position, but she's not all rigged out in armour, ready to fight like the emperor is. She's resplendent. It's not what she does, but who she is. In many decks, she's depicted in the heart of nature, as if her empire is actually the natural world. And likewise, the hierophant. In many decks, he's called the pope, but a hierophant, in the strict sense, is somebody who leads people to something holy, or someone who interprets esoteric mysteries to people. He's not doing anything, creating anything. He's merely pointing people to something that's already there. The Empress and the Hierophant, they don't have power to do or make anything as such. But they do have authority. It's what they embody that's the key thing. A few weeks ago, I'd picked up a book by a guy named Paul Verhaag called Says Who? The Struggle for Authority in a Market-Based Society. Power, writes Verhaag, is a two-sided construction and requires two people, for example, of whom one is stronger and can impose his or her will on the weaker. Power is always deferred violence. Authority, by contrast, is a threefold structure. A person commands authority over others on the basis of a third factor, namely an external source in which everyone jointly believes. It's on this basis that more or less voluntary subjugation to authority rests. Authority is always an inner compulsion. If you want to understand authority, you must understand the basis it rests on. Interesting what Verhaag brings out there. That power is a relationship of two parties, whereas authority involves a relationship of three parties. In power, there's one party and another party. One subjugates the other, and in the process of doing that, they create those roles. They become the subjugator who rules over the subjugated. Power is a person or a group of people having or doing things to other people. But authority, Verhaag suggests, is a three-party interaction. Somebody assumes authority by standing before somebody and saying, what I present to you is good and true because of that over there. That over there being something that both the person saying that and the person they're saying it to can accept as good and true. From this perspective, authority comes from a kind of holding back from power. The person in authority is kind of saying, what I'm doing here is really not about me at all, but it's about this bigger thing that we both know is more important. Unfortunately, of course, people can pretend to be exercising authority when really they're exercising power. And that can become apparent in the situation which is the focus of Verhaag's book. When the person in authority and the person subject to that authority actually lack a third party, that thing over there, that they can both agree is good and true. This is unfortunately something that we're seeing being played out in UK politics at the moment in a very vivid way, where it's becoming clear that a good proportion of the people running the country have laid down certain rules supposedly on the basis that they're right and good, 
but by choosing not to subject themselves to their own rules, betray the fact that really they don't think they're right and good at all. It then becomes clear that although they have power, they have the ability to set the rules, in fact they lack any authority. Those rules have not been set on the basis of an agreement on a common good. It seems as if what people like this are incapable of understanding is that to gain authority you have to give up power. You have to subjugate yourself also to the rules that you set or else it becomes apparent that you don't really recognise anything as higher than yourself. I think that indicates very strongly that there can be no such thing, strictly speaking, as spiritual power because power resides in a notion of self. Power proceeds from what someone has or what someone does. And for there to be any notion of having something or doing something, there also needs to be a notion of a self that that's based upon. And I don't mean to imply that there's anything intrinsically wrong with power. It can be used, of course, for good as well as for negative purposes and we all need certain powers I think to make life worth living and certainly there are some people who could do with having a bit more power over their lives and some who I think could get by with having a little less but it's far more the question of authority that confronts us with the Hierophant and where authority is concerned it's not so much a question of what we have or what we do It's not really a question concerning ourselves at all, but rather the question around authority is where does it come from? Where do we situate it? The usual common interpretation of the card is that the Hierophant is a representation of a source of authority. I think that's maybe why this card often is entitled the Pope. Maybe back in the day people could have viewed the image of a patriarchal religious figure as someone who had true authority, because of course that authority would be situated in God. But that's not the culture we live in now. We no longer live in a culture where it's agreed that an idea of God is something we can all situate a sense of authority into. And maybe you could say that one of the defining characteristics of Western neoliberalist societies is precisely the absence of any agreed basis for authority. Paul Verhaag, the guy whose book I mentioned previously, this is the central question of his book. We live in a market-based society where... Supposedly the free market is the ultimate arbiter of what happens. But of course, a market doesn't reflect the true value of things or what's going to serve the greatest good to the greatest number of people. And as it has become increasingly clear that the people who lead us, the people who have power over us, don't actually seem to represent us anymore, but are really just acting in the interests of the the market, then the notion of any shared, agreed source of authority has become increasingly more fractious. For Haag's argument is that it's no longer possible to situate authority in political leaders, but maybe where the future lies is to invest that authority into the group, into society as a whole. And he talks about experiments that have been done in various Western countries with democratic systems of decision-making that don't involve elections, that don't involve political parties even, but are nevertheless democratic. Deliberative democracy seems to be a name that's used to describe this way of making decisions. Personally... (laughs) I wasn't quite convinced. My feeling is that groups don't end up making decisions that are more ethical than leaders do. 
And consequently, I find it difficult to imagine that deliberative democracy can deliver radical change whilst a society remains market-based. But where I think I do agree with Vahag is that it's better to have somewhere that we can agree authority resides rather than nowhere at all, which seems to be where we're currently heading, where actually it's a market that's in charge that isn't underpinned by any human values. A society like that taken to an extreme, pretty much like the so-called authoritarian societies. Actually, both of them are very thin on authority. And really, what you've got in both cases is just power. We're compelled to do things just because the algorithm says so, or Vladimir Putin says so. There's no sense that it's done because it's intrinsically right or good. What I'd suggest is that the Hierophant is not the Pope. He's not a figure of authority at all. What the Hierophant actually represents is a figure who knows where and how to situate authority. When the Hierophant comes up in a spread, possibly it's an invitation to think less about who or what the authorities are in our lives, but more about the process by which we find them, why and how we're situating authority, where we currently choose to place it. The Hierophant maybe doesn't represent someone who has authority, but someone who understands where and how you can find it, someone who's willing to show us how to do that and to guide us towards where authority deserves to be put. So where should we place authority? Where can we place authority? Of course, I'm not going to lay down any hard and fast rules about that. It's interesting, however, to look at some of the writings of commentators on the tarot down the years. It's as if the encounter with the Hierophant brings out a response to that question. To be straight up, to be completely honest about it, when I think where I personally would like to situate authority, it is, I'm afraid, in the figure of a loving father. When I think about the sort of society I'd like to live in, the sort of leadership I'd like in that society, it is a socialist state, a government that runs a nation in the interests of its people and for the welfare of its people. I'm a believer in what is often called the nanny state, a centralised government that's there to look after you. That's the image that's my ideal. That's what I would always want to be working towards. But I fully accept that just because that's my ideal doesn't mean it's true, or that just because I want it, it's something that should be forced upon others. Because that view of society, I'm aware, is not viewed as being as radical or beneficent as it might have been in the past. I do wonder if our notions of the ideal form of authority are maybe shaped by our experience of our parents, who of course were the first authorities that we came up against in our lives. The figure of the loving father is one that's regarded with a lot of suspicion these days. But it just so happened that I was lucky enough to have had such a figure in my life. The idea that a patriarchal figure could be loving and giving and kind seems almost unthinkable. I remember when I was doing my therapy training, one of the tutors used to comment that my way of working with clients was very maternal, which always used to irritate me because I didn't see it in those terms at all. I didn't see myself as occupying a feminine role. Here's an extract from Eliphas Levi's commentary on the Hierophant. 
This was written around 1861, and he too, it seems, had socialist leanings. One feels oneself in love, he writes, ineffably in love, with all that is beauty, truth and justice. Love one another. That is the law and the prophets. Meditate and understand this word. And when you have understood, read no more, seek no more, doubt no more, love. Be no more wise, be no more learned. Love, that is the whole doctrine of true religion. Religion means charity, and God himself is only love. I think Levi and I are on the same page. What his encounter with the Hierophant seems to have drawn out is precisely an image of a loving paternal God. If it's in the interests of love, then it looks as if that's where Levi would be putting his notion of authority. It could almost have been his voice that I heard in that meditation that I mentioned earlier. Alistair Crowley's commentary on the Hierophant in the Book of Tot, which was published in 1944, presents us with something very different, but at the same time something really interesting. For Crowley, Telema was the religion of the new eon, and his version of the tarot was intended to reflect that. And it is reflected especially strongly in the Hierophant, which also appears as the frontispiece in the edition I have, and presumably it appeared in the original edition in that place too, which suggests Crowley is ascribing quite a degree of importance to this particular card. On the Hierophant's breast is a pentagram, and inside it a small male child is dancing. The child is the god Horus, who is the herald of the coming aeon, and before the Hierophant stands a woman with a sword. This woman represents Venus, writes Crowley, as she now is in this new eon, no longer the mere vehicle of her male counterpart, but armed and militant. Crowley really does seem to have been aware that the days of an unquestioned patriarchal male authority were over, he writes. It is impossible at the present time to explain this card thoroughly, for only the course of events can show how the current of initiation will work out. So what Crowley's commentary really seems to bring out in his encounter with this card is precisely the very idea of authority in a state of flux, to the extent that it can't be pinpointed at all. This is how he describes the figure of the Hierophant itself. Though the face of the Hierophant appears benignant and smiling, he writes, and the child himself seems glad with wanton innocence, it is hard to deny that in the expression of the initiator is something mysterious, even sinister. He seems to be enjoying a very secret joke at somebody's expense. There is a distinctly sadistic aspect to this card. Crowley's really out there when it comes to the Hierophant, I think, as we might well expect him to be, because he's founding a new religion. There's almost a tricksterish aspect to the Hierophant. I can't help feeling whether to some extent Crowley is identifying with this figure, maybe to some degree placing himself into the card as the figure of authority for the new eon. But in any case, what he seems to have succeeded in bringing into focus here is precisely the contemporary problem we have with authority. It's difficult to pinpoint where it is at all at the moment, and where it does make appearances. Maybe it does seem sinister and possibly cruel. Another commentator on the tarot is a writer who goes by the pen name Muni Sadhu. His commentary appeared in 1962 with the title The Tarot, A Contemporary Course of the Quintessence of Hermetic Occultism. 
It's an interesting but rather strange book and quite dark in terms of its approach. The figure of the Hierophant in the version of the card shown in Moody Sadhu's book does look very much as if he's a powerful figure, somewhat lording it over the two monks who are almost kind of cowering in front of him. The author acknowledges that the Hierophant is making a gesture of blessing, but then he says, in any case, this gesture is a sign expressing will. And a bit later he writes about the Hierophant. He is still a man. That is, he is at the same time basically an active symbol, putting knowledge into practice in life. This element of the enlightened willpower of the active authority will be the basic idea of this fifth arcanum. And then at the rest of the chapter, and it's I think the longest chapter in the whole book, launches into an exploration of the pentagram as a symbol of the will and describes all sorts of correspondences and exercises that we can do to strengthen our power of will. And uh, included in there as well is a long anecdote about a young unfortunate man who the author suggests had his will taken over by some sort of entity and was driven insane because he couldn't refrain from masturbation. It is indeed a very odd book, but interesting from our perspective, I think, because Munisadu does seem to take the Hierophant as a figure of authority. The Hierophant here is a figure in a position that enables him to exert his will to an unusual degree. And I think as a consequence, there's a serious slippage here into power rather than authority. This version of the Hierophant is someone capable of exercising power. And the main thrust of the chapter seems to be about giving us symbols and exercises and concepts that we as the reader can use in order to emulate this figure of power and will that Munisadu sets in front of us. And this brings us at last, inevitably, to Meditations on the Tarot by Anonymous. It's curious because Anonymous, in his chapter, which he entitles The Pope rather than the Hierophant, as we might expect from his Catholic leanings. He also ends up devoting a lot of the chapter to the symbolism of the pentagram. Anonymous seems to finish writing his book around 1967, so he's coming fairly soon after Muni Sadhu. And although Anonymous doesn't mention him anywhere by name, as far as I'm aware, I do wonder whether... Meditations on the Tarot is, in whole or in part, maybe a kind of response to Munisadu. Anonymous accepts the idea of the pentagram as a symbol of the individual will. A pentagram looks a bit like a human body. It's got a head, two arms, two legs. And the arms and legs and the head, as Anonymous describes it, are the organs of action. They're the bits of our bodies that we use to have an impact on the world. When we perform an act of magic that consists of wanting to impose our personal will upon the world, this is how Anonymous describes what's going on. Such an operation, he says, can only make use of forces lower than the operator, for one does not command angels. The operator here is alone and acts as a magical technician under his own responsibility and at his own risk and peril. What he's suggesting, I think, is when we undertake this kind of magic, we're vulnerable. And the reason for that is, as human beings at our current stage of development, we're vulnerable because... 
we often find ourselves willing what isn't necessarily right or good for us. Our will is often a kind of stunted, sort of primitive thing that doesn't necessarily make the wisest choice. It's very often not aligned with reality. And when our personal desires and wishes often come up hard against brute reality, we experience that as traumatic. It wounds and injures us. So what Anonymous does here is he reformulates the pentagram. Instead of seeing it as analogous to five forces of the will, he recasts it as five kind of trauma reactions that drive the way the personal will frequently manifests. These he lists as the desire for personal greatness, the desire to take things, the desire to keep things, the desire to advance onto others, to kind of intrude upon others, and the impulse to hold on to others, to not let people be themselves, to dominate or control them. So when we find ourselves willing something, wanting something to manifest in the world, it's a good checklist to consider that impulse against. Is it a wound? Is it some kind of trauma reaction that that impulse is proceeding from in us? Alongside this, Anonymous suggests that there are three modalities in which the personal will expresses itself and that these correspond to three different types of magic. The first he formulates as my will be done, which he describes as a Faustian kind of magic, a very individualistic kind of magic. The next one is our will be done, a collective form of magic. And the third one, thy will be done which Anonymous describes as sacred magic. The first two forms of magic, he writes, Faustian and Collective, make use of the method of which the pentagram of the five currents of personal and collective will is the sign. They are based on the principle that the strong dominates the weak. It is a matter here of the power of compulsion. And what Anonymous is describing, I think, corresponds to what we've talked about here in terms of the contrast between power and authority. My will be done. That was seemingly very much the approach in Muni Sadhu's commentary on the Hierophant. Our will be done. We saw that in... Paul Verhaag's exploration of authority in contemporary society and his idea that market forces have destroyed the usual sites of traditional authority and that the way forward is for us to situate authority in the collective or the group. With respect to the third form of magic, writes Anonymous, sacred magic, the method it makes use of is not the force of the will, but rather its purity. And he goes on to say that human beings being what they are, the will is never entirely pure, perhaps. So what we have to do to the best that we can is to paralyse those wounds that we described earlier, those triggers or trauma reactions. And as far as possible, to the extent that we can, fill them up with pure will instead. This pure will, this sacred magic, thy will be done. What Anonymous is describing here corresponds, I think, to what we've described in terms of authority. When we act with authority, we're not acting entirely from a position of personal power, but in the interests of something else. Thy will be done. We're acting in the interests of what's good and true. And this is what we saw, I think, in Eliphas Levi's commentary on the Hierophant. 
if we're acting always from a place of love, then that is very much thy will be done, acting in the interests of the benefits to others. Crowley's approach, as we saw, was a bit more open-ended in his commentary on the Hierophant. He says we can't really say with certainty what the Eon of Horus is going to be about. The implication seemed to be that everyone was going to have to work things out for themselves, decide for themselves where they were going to situate their idea of authority. You do often hear people saying things like there's no such thing as truth and we have to create that for ourselves. But as we've seen, I hope, there are alternatives to just my will be done. And my sense is that Crowley was very much of the opinion that even if we do have to find the truth for ourselves, it's nevertheless truth that has to be found however we do that. And I think also that Crowley's notion of true will probably has a lot in common with Anonymous's idea of pure will. What Anonymous sees in the image of the Pope on the tarot card is a process. In his left hand he holds up a cross and with his right hand he's making a gesture of blessing. In the Marseille deck, the oldest deck that we have, the left hand holds the cross up in the air and the right hand is lowered down to earth to make that distinction even more apparent. Anonymous suggests that this is depicting a process that he calls spiritual respiration, a kind of breathing in and a breathing out. The left hand with the cross reaching upwards represents prayer or turning ourselves towards the divine. And on the right hand, the hand making a gesture of blessing. On this side, we have benediction, a kind of spiritual exhalation which is not just saying something nice or wishing others well, but putting into action that divine power that comes from turning towards the divine. And this doesn't depend on a theistic context at all. We can see the same spiritual respiration in Buddhism, for instance, where we sit and we meditate and we have insights into reality, and then we get up from the cushion and put those insights into practice in the everyday world. So, regarding the Hierophant and this process of spiritual respiration, Anonymous says, For him, the Hierophant, true is that which comprises harmonious respiration, and false is that which upsets the harmony of spiritual respiration. The Hierophant, then is all about this process of prayer and benediction, prayer and benediction, turning to the divine and then turning that into action in the everyday world. He doesn't have any authority in himself. He's not a representative of the truth. What he represents, what he embodies is a process the process by which authority, pure will, becomes manifest in the world. And that's what I meant earlier on when I said that the Hierophant, he can be read not as a figure of authority, but a figure that shows us where we can find authority and bring that into the world, practice that. So I'd noticed the Hierophant turning up in tarot spreads in my daily practice. And that sent me to Anonymous and his chapter on the Pope. And the idea of this spiritual respiration of prayer and benediction. And then it just so happened that weekend that somebody recommended a film to watch. A film made in 2019 and directed by... Marielle Heller called A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood. It's based very loosely on the life and work of the children's television presenter and performer Fred Rogers. 
and Tom Hanks plays the part of Mr. Rogers in the film. I'm aware that Fred Rogers is like a household name in the United States, apparently, but I'd not come across him before. And as I was watching the film and finding it totally engrossing and mesmerising, it suddenly started to dawn on me. Oh my God, Fred Rogers is doing what Anonymous describes in his commentary on The Pope. Like I mentioned, I don't know much about Fred Rogers, so I'm only going on the basis of the film. The plot concerns a very prominent journalist who writes in-depth biographical pieces, but he has a tendency to write exposés to unearth difficulties and secrets in the lives of his subjects. And he has a lot of difficulty going on in his own life. He has a very troubled relationship with his father and finds it very difficult to forgive his father for things that his father did in the past. So the journalist sets out to do the usual thing with Fred Rogers that he does to all the people that he writes about. He sets out to uncover his weaknesses and undermine his authority. But he's immediately taken aback by what Mr. Rogers does, his evident care and concern for children. Fred Rogers's television programmes for children are all about making children feel safe and cared for and enabling them to build trust in themselves and others. And the themes of the shows help kids deal with difficult things like divorce and death and also with their own feelings, feelings like anger and sadness. But even though he's taken aback by this, the journalist sets out to try and dig up the dirt on Mr Rogers. He scrutinises him, watches him really carefully, asks him difficult questions about his past and about his intimate relationships. And there is in the film at times a feeling that there is something there, there is some darkness in Mr Rogers. He sometimes sidesteps the journalist's questions and there are a couple of moments where there's a feeling coming from Mr Rogers which Tom Hanks does really, really well. You can't really tell what this feeling is. It might be a kind of suppressed rage or a deep depression or just an impenetrable barrier that seems really difficult to get behind. My feeling watching the film was there is a kind of darkness around Mr Rogers, although at the same time he radiates a sense of love and care and compassion for people that seems utterly genuine. And this triumphs at the end of the day. Eventually the journalist allows Mr Rogers to help him with his feelings towards his father. Mr. Rogers gives the journalist a lot of time, a lot of attention, comes into his life, spends time with his family, and eventually the journalist is able to forgive his father and they get back to having a relationship with one another. It's a brilliant, intriguing film. I really enjoyed it and I recommend it. And the thing that swung it for me was... Like I mentioned, there is a darkness, there is a secret, there is something hidden in Mr. Rogers. Something that he doesn't want to be exposed. It's clear that he isn't perfect. But gradually it becomes apparent that that's not the point. The point is that he's always trying as hard as he can to bring goodness into the world from beyond himself. What he tries to bring into the world may indeed be better than he himself is. At one point the journalist actually asks somebody what it is that Mr Rogers does in his life when he's not on screen. And he's told that, you know, he doesn't do all that much. He spends a lot of his time praying. And again it seemed to me that this was a curiously synchronistic encounter with a figure that had a lot in common with Anonymous's commentary on the Pope. Somebody who 
prays and offers blessings, that spiritual respiration, prayer and benediction, prayer and benediction. For Mr Rogers, it felt as if celebrity was a bit of an occupational hazard. It wasn't something that he set out to do. His character in the film isn't somebody who seeks personal power. He certainly is somebody who has some authority. But again, the way he embodies authority is very like Anonymous's description of the Pope in the tarot. His authority does not come from being perfect, which he's evidently not. It comes from engagement in a process, a constant, repeated attempt to connect with something higher and then bring that down into action in the everyday world. What the film brought into focus for me was the ideal of a world that could be so much better if we only organised it according to human interests, human needs. And how absurd it is that we always seem to end up doing something different from that. How is it that every system or organisation we try to set up seems to fall away from that? Anonymous's idea of the human will as often acting from a place of woundedness maybe offers us some pointers. I hope there's been something of interest here regarding what is definitely the least sexy card in the tarot. But that's it for this episode. Don't forget, you can support the podcast and get access to additional material at Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash oeith to find out more about that. Let's speak again soon. Bye-bye.